our last section of chapter 22, uh, after which we will be done, which is uh, the Lord's Day, or the Christian Sabbath, as it's called. Uh, the chapter is, after all, titled, Of Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day. This, too, is another topic, kind of like with family worship, although I can't totally say, uh, I say here, uh, this is a topic that over the years I have come to really cherish and appreciate more. I, I can't say that about family worship in the sense that it's only been recently that we've really been doing that with our kids um, in terms of their age and stuff, but I would say in terms of importance and cherishing uh, the Lord's Day uh, is really up there for me. You know, I said a couple weeks ago, um, if you're really Reformed, you know, for, for some guys who are brand new Reformed, they're like, they're, they're reading, you know, you start off, you're reading like MacArthur or something. And then you go and you're like, okay, now I'm going to read Turretin. Now you're getting deeper. Um, for me, the real mark of a guy who's, who's Reformed um, is like family worship and sanctifying the Lord's Day. That, that, to me, is the stuff that I've really come to love and appreciate um, about, about Reformed theology and, and really just biblical theology. And I would say it is a great strength, the great strength of a church that loves and sanctifies the Sabbath. And I would say, by contrast, uh, a Christian or a church is greatly weakened who does not properly cease from their worldly cares and worship and rest in the Lord on the Lord's day. Um, so it's very important. Well, uh, what I'd like us to do then, uh, as we consider the Sabbath, is to first consider and establish its biblical and theological basis, which is really the first thing that our confession does in paragraph 7. After that, after we've studied, we've established the Sabbath, um, we will move on more to the practical question of, okay, if this is true, how then ought we to observe the Sabbath day? Um, and we're really going to look at that next week. In fact, uh, I'm thinking that even this is going to be a shorter Sunday school because I kind of started putting some of that stuff in, but I think I'd rather just cut it off and uh, we'll consider it next week more fully. Well, let's go ahead and uh, let's read paragraph seven as a whole, and then we'll begin breaking it down. Paragraph 7, chapter 22 in the Confession of Faith. As it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God, so by His word in a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, He hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. All right, there's a lot, lot to unpack there um, uh, in that paragraph. First, let me just kind of say that paragraph 7 is not so much argumentation for a Sabbath. Um, it's not trying to set forth with all these arguments why there is a Christian Sabbath, why we keep the Lord's Day. 
Rather, it is really the conclusion that kind of assumes all those arguments. I say that because we're going to look at those arguments which support the conclusion, but just note that that's not so much the purpose of the seventh paragraph. It's not trying to give you a full-blown argument to persuade you. It's just kind of assuming it's true. So we don't want to put it to a standard that it's not necessarily, uh, or, you know, hold it to something that it's not setting out to do. Well, what can we say then about the conclusions that are found in it? I would say many things, but I would say probably the most important thing to note is that kind of really the whole argument, the whole argument, if you will, of paragraph 7 comes down to this, that the Sabbath is not, strictly speaking, merely a mosaic institution, but it's rather grounded in something uh, much deeper than that. That's really all paragraph 7 is doing. It, is, it does do a lot of other things as it does that. At the heart of it, it's saying this goes deeper than Moses, and so it's not abolished with Moses. Perhaps you have heard of that argument. Um, you know, there are some, um, perhaps even some that are kind of Reformed Baptist-y, kind of holding to the confession to some degree. Um, they would say, well, I'm not so strict on the confession. I'm not a full-blown Sabbatarian, and they would say, I... I kind of see it as, as part of Moses, um, and that was abrogated, that was fulfilled by Christ, and so we are no longer obligated to keep a Sabbath day. Typically, in support of such a position, the following passages would be pointed to, which we'll look at now, since it's a good place to consider them and see if they hold any water and try to poke some holes into them. Um, we'll read them all together because I think they kind of all are saying the same thing. All right, for the most part, you'll really see that as we read together. First, turn with me to Romans chapter 14, verses 5 through 6. Romans 14, 5 through 6. It says, One person esteems one day as better than another while another person esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Well, it's often argued um, that if the Christian Sabbath were binding, if there were such a thing, Paul would have never said what he says here. One observes one day while another observes alike. Um, In fact, I've kind of heard some people saying like, hey, you're the guy here who observes the one day. I'm the guy who observes all days alike. However, you're judging me. Paul says you're not to judge. You are just to be convinced in your own mind, right? Uh, I don't think that's the case. We'll we'll consider what, what it is, okay? Um, But let's move on. Let's turn now to the next passage, Galatians 4, 9 through 11. Galatians 4, 9 through 11. It says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, that's a fun little thing that Paul does a couple times every now and then. You know God, but really you're known by God talk about that. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? 
You observe days, days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored, labored over you in vain. Again, here Paul speaks um, not only of days, but of months and seasons of years. All of these, and this is kind of getting to my argument. We're going to look at one more verse. All of these, what he's referring to, are elements, the, the calendar of the Mosaic law. That would mean that day, I don't know, that may mean uh, Sabbath day. We'll, we'll look at that in a second. But it, it probably means other single days, like the Day of Atonement, right? All kinds of days, not just months and things like that. Um, though I do think it does refer to the Sabbath day. You'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Um, and so it is argued, well, Paul clearly sees the Sabbath, at least the reference to the keeping of a special day, as a mosaic institution, and what's more, to insist that to be that that is to be kept today, is that not, in some sense, it might be argued, to be kind of lumped in with the Judaizers? Aren't you perhaps going back to Moses in some sense? Aren't you clinging to the law? Could be said. Well, lastly, let's turn to Colossians 2, 16 through 17. Colossians 2. 16 through 17. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Well, there it might be said, you specifically have the term Sabbath. Come on. How can you argue there's a Sabbath day any more that you would argue there's a new moon festival or there are food or drink restrictions, right? These are part of the ceremonial, the typological shadows that have been, been, done, away, been done away with now that Christ has appeared, right? Well, how do we respond to that um, in a way that's not cavalier, that's respectful, but uh, hopefully also biblical? Um, I would say there are, there are several things to say. First, uh, I'm not trying to be provocative or just snarky when I say this. There's a sense in which we kind of agree with them in their interpretation of those passages. Um, in the sense that there are ceremonial aspects of the Sabbath which we are not to return to. And to do so, to be dogmatic about that, would be, in a sense, to go back to Moses, right? There's a sense in which we would agree with you. Um, the problem is, we're not arguing for going back to those mosaic elements of the Sabbath. We're not arguing to go back to, the Saturday, to Saturday, but we're arguing in favor of the Lord's Day. It's interesting, um, one of the really fun documents uh, of Baptist history in the New World uh, was a journal, forget the man's name, he's actually related to Dr. Renahan's wife, um, of course, right? Um, but he was a Baptist, and then he became what's called uh, a Seventh-day Baptist, and uh, where they kept Saturday. And we have actually, if you ever heard of Obadiah Holmes, Obadiah Holmes was a particular Baptist who was whipped in America uh, for being a Baptist. And we have the records of this man's journal where it, it recounts a, uh, uh, a church meeting because this was kind of splitting some of these early particular Baptist churches in America. And Obadiah Holmes stands up and says, you are going back to Moses. Why? Because they're going back to Saturday, 
is what he's saying. That's been changed now. So there are elements about the Sabbath which we can, I mean, we can kind of agree with those who don't largely agree with us on the Sabbath. We can kind of agree with their exegesis of those texts and say, yeah, there are certain elements of the Sabbath that we are not to go back to, okay? At the same time, that's not an argument against what we're arguing for. We're arguing for the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath. What Paul is talking about is returning to the Jewish Sabbath and being divisive over those things. Furthermore, if we take a step back just from those passages um, and, and consider Scripture as a whole, we'll find some very compelling and weighty reasons for why there must still be some kind of a carryover of the fourth commandment under the new covenant as well. There are very weighty reasons why that ought to be the case. With that last line of thinking, let's now consider paragraph 7 again and begin with the very beginning of it. As it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God. Now, our confession is in some ways, I said it's not arguing, it's coming with conclusions. Um, we could say, in a sense, though, it has those arguments a little bit built into its conclusions, and it has so many, it doesn't even start with Scripture yet. It's going to get there. It's like, I, I have so many arguments, let me tell you. First, I'm going to go even more fundamental than that. I'm just going to argue from nature, okay? It is a law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God. Now, if that has always been the case, then that started before Moses and it continues now even though Moses has been abrogated because it's grounded in nature, right? Indeed, the confession says this a few lines later, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. It didn't start with Moses. It's actually a creation ordinance. And in fact, if you go to Moses, Moses points you back to creation, right? Now, oh, let me read this. Genesis 2, 2 through 3. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Okay? So even, even uh, before coming to the scriptures, our confession starts even more simply than that, and it goes to nature. Now, it also argues kind of just from reason here, too. This is, this is also what it means to argue from the law of nature, that it just is kind of common sense that if there are certain duties that we owe to God in worship, why would there not be a time apportioned for that worship, right? We can say we see that. This is one way to look at the law of nature, the light of nature. You compare what humanity has generally done in their worship, not to say that that's acceptable worship to God. It's not. It's false and it's twisted. But when we look around at other religions, don't we see them generally apportioning time for the worship of whatever their God is, or, or having various kind of weeks or times or things like that? Yeah, we do. Well, it shouldn't surprise us then that nature or even the Word of God establishes 
a time when we should worship God as well. Next, the confession continues, so by his word, so it starts off with nature, but now it's going to bring in the big guns, so by God's word in a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment binding all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him. Now, as far as where the word argues from this, right, it doesn't necessarily tell us. We've already seen in Genesis 2, um, uh, we could look at more, we're going to look at more in a little bit. I would say probably, well, there's a lot of places, we'll get to that. Um, But first, let's try to understand the rather technical terminology in the phrase, in a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, though perpetual, you guys understand. Particularly, what is meant by positive and moral? Well, positive and moral both have reference to laws or at least different kinds, different aspects of various laws. Moral refers to moral law. Moral law is that law which typically we refer to as eternal, perpetual. It's not merely ceremonial or positive, as we'll see. For example, the Ten Commandments. And we'll set aside the fact that for now, the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath is in the Ten Commandments, right? But the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, those are the moral law. They didn't start with Jesus. They started with creation, and they're grounded in the nature of God. They'll always be wrong. It's the moral law of God, right? Um, Well, the confession speaks about the fourth commandment as positive as well as Moral. What is positive? Positive is perhaps best understood as something additional to moral. Perhaps the simplest way to understand it, though this is, it's a simple way to understand it, is ceremonial. Okay? Ceremonial. It is true law because it's given by God, and so it is sin to disobey but it can be removed or changed by God just as easily as it was given. It's not perpetual, okay? So, for example, you shall not murder. That's moral. You shall not wear clothing of mixed fabric. Well, that's positive. That was ceremonial. And we know because it began with Moses, and now it's done with Moses. You can wear cotton and polyester mixes to your heart's content, and you are not sinning. Because it's positive, right? You're not breaking a moral commandment of God. However, our confession says that the Sabbath is moral and positive, or positive and moral. Kind of sounds a bit contradictory. Is it positive or moral? Is it eternal and binding, or can it change and be done away with? Well, actually both, but in different ways. Now, we'll look later at a document that was produced by the Synod of Dort, where we get the canons of Dort. These are not the canons of Dort themselves. Um, These are another document produced by the Synod. The the Synod of Dort did a whole lot of things. They, like, I want to say they, they, like, translated a new version of the Bible. They did all kinds of things in addition to the canons of Dort, okay? Well, this is one of them. They have a, a document, which we'll look at later, which talks about the Sabbath and how it is to be kept. But it says this, in the fourth commandment of the divine law, part is ceremonial, we could say positive, 
and part is moral. So it's both, but it depends which part. The moral aspect that is perpetual and has never changed is that one day in seven be set aside for the worship of God. The positive aspect is which day in seven be set aside. That has changed. As the confession says, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, excuse me, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. So we acknowledge there's, there's a positive moral or there's a positive ceremonial element to it. And in many ways, if we were to look back at those verses from which people would say, well, there's, no, you know, there's, no, there's nothing binding under the new covenant, we could kind of just say, well, yeah, but you're kind of only dealing with the positive ceremonial aspect of the Sabbath. The roots go much deeper than that. They go into moral as well, okay? Now, as far as the changing of which day, the positive element, let me just say here that it is a picture of the work of Christ. When we look at Adam in the garden, in the covenant of works, we see him being given the task of emulating his heavenly Father. As God subdues the void and chaos, makes the world and brings something out of it, so Adam is to subdue the earth and ultimately create human civilization. As God rules over all things and names them, showing his authority over them, so also Adam rules over the earth and the creatures of the earth, and he gets to name them as well. But God's Sabbath is significant. I think sometimes we might jump over the significance of the Sabbath in the covenant of works. What it signifies to Adam is that there is a rest of sorts after his own task is complete. If God rested after he did his work, and he's saying, okay, my son Adam, in the covenant of works, you emulate me, that implies there is a rest after Adam's works as well, which we would say is ultimately what he would receive as a reward in the covenant of works, a state of glory and eternal life. This is why elsewhere in Scripture, Sabbath rest is taken as a picture of eternal life and the fulfillment of the law. As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, 9 through 10, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. To enjoy Sunday signifies our resting in Christ. Christ has fulfilled the law. We rest in him. We have entered into God's Sabbath. Now, Adam, sadly, tragically, did not finish his task. He failed. And so he did not enter God's rest. Christ, the second Adam, did enter it after fulfilling the law. In fact, what is he doing right now? He's sitting. He is seated at the right hand of his father. And so the positive element of the Sabbath has been changed to show that Christ has fulfilled the law and that the new creation of rest has been inaugurated. And so to go back to the Sabbath on Saturday is to miss the big picture of what the Sabbath ultimately pointed to, that we now have in Christ. In that sense, Paul could say, don't go back to that stuff. Why are you going back to that, right? At the end of the day, though, that does not get rid of the moral elements of the Sabbath as well. All right, where are we here? We got lots. 
in this image. Okay, as far as other uh, uh, arguments to support uh, the conclusion of the per perpetuity of the Lord's Day, um, I did point out briefly that the Sabbath is uh, in the fourth commandment, which is the moral law. And if you just look at the Sabbath under the law of Moses, it's really treated alongside other moral laws. Um, when God, you know, sends Israel off into exile or Judah into exile for their sin, they'll talk about all the great wickedness going on, the worshiping of other gods and not keeping his Sabbath, right? He does occasionally mention ceremonial law aspects, not distinguishing between clean and unclean. But when he really mentions the Sabbath, it's often in line with the moral law, which is really what we see with it being put in the Ten Commandments. Furthermore, when we come to the New Testament, we see several evidences of this. First, the church gathers on the first day of the week, typically. Okay? If there were such a thing, we would expect to see evidence, a pattern of Christians doing such a thing on the first day of the week. I would say that's what we see. First of all, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 16.2. Paul says, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now, here he's talking about uh, the collecting of the, uh, the gift for the, the Jewish Christians, and he tells them that they are to set something aside so that when he come, comes, he's not like, hey, empty your bank accounts, right? It's very practical advice. And yet he tells them to do this on the first day of the week. Now, why? Is it because they got paid on Saturday? No. Is that when they're billing or they're... Uh, uh, is that when you know, their check finally came in? No, not that we know of. There's nothing said like that. Well, it's when the church gathered. They can put it all aside. They give it to the elders or more particularly to the deacons so that it's ready when Paul comes, right? Or look at Acts 20, Acts chapter 20, verse 7. This one in particular is a little bit stronger than the previous one. Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, the breaking of bread there does not just mean to have a meal. It probably more accurately signifies to have the Lord's Supper. So you have the Lord's Supper, you have an apostle of the Lord talking for extended of periods of time, you know what we normally call that? We call that Sunday worship. What's happening here is a gathering among these Christians for worship. Paul is in town. They do this on the first day of the week. They break bread. Paul talks. He teaches. And then the next day, he leaves. Okay? Again, another pattern, the first day of the week. Really, what they're doing is exactly what it says in Acts 2.42 about the church in Jerusalem. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Imagine that's kind of what they're doing that day, right? But note, this all happens on the first day of the week or Sunday. Lastly, uh, the last verse, and for me, 
this was the clincher. This is the one that got me where I was like, okay, that's, that's like a smoking gun. That's a couple smoking guns, right? Um, to seeing the Lord's Day as definitely the Christian Sabbath. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. Here John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now that's interesting for several reasons. First, we see that there is a specific day that is referred to as the Lord's, right? And John just kind of assumes that his readers will know what he's talking about. But if all days belong to the Lord in the sense that there's no Sabbath, then really that, that would make John, he's really not saying anything, right? By saying the Lord's day, it's like, okay, this is the day that the Lord has made, right? Um, he's not actually saying something. Really what we see, though, is there, is there is an actual day that is attributed to the Lord. Furthermore, the uniqueness of this day is highlighted by the term that is used in Greek, for Lord's, in Lord's Day. It's the Greek word kuriakos, kuriakos. It's probably where we get our word church from. In fact, if we were to be from Scotland for a moment, you would hear it much more clearly, kirk, kuriakos. You can kind of hear it, right? I think our word probably comes from the French. French. Uh, but anyway, uh, church, it's only used twice in the New Testament and it particularly expresses ownership or a very close association with someone or something else. For example, it was used to speak of the emperor's uh, treasury, right? If you've ever been, you know, you've seen something in, in England, uh, like in a movie or something, you might say, these are the king's lands, right? This is the king's money. This is something that belongs to the king, it's particularly his, that's how this term was used in reference to the Roman emperor. This is his treasury. This belongs to him. It's especially his money, okay? That's the word used here to refer to this day in respect of Christ. It's particularly his day for his special purposes. We see this confirmed if we look at the only other time that this word is used in the New Testament, which is in 1 Corinthians 11.20, which refers to the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11.20. Oh, I was going to read it. I guess I didn't put it in there. That's okay. Um, again, by referring to it that way, 1 Corinthians 11.20, Paul is, special, is, is basically saying this is not just any meal, right? You're sitting for the Lord's Supper. Yes, everything is to be done for the glory of God. All food ultimately comes from Him. But by calling this the Lord's Supper... He's saying this was instituted by Christ. This is to be done according to Christ's purposes, and it is especially his. You are to treat it like it is his. And that terminology is also used of the Lord's day, which John just assumes the Christians know what he's talking about. This all fits well with how God talks about the Sabbath in the Old Testament. It is his special day for his special purposes. He says in Isaiah 58, 13, if you turn back... Uh, your foot from the Sabbath, and from doing your pleasure on my holy day. Wait a minute, all days belong to God. Yes, but he calls the Sabbath his holy day. So also, in the New Testament, 
Sunday is the day that belongs to Christ. It is His holy day, His special day as well. Well, that is paragraph 7 um, and some supporting argumentation in a nutshell. Uh, as I said, I really did, I was going to kind of do more, I think it'd probably be better to put it all, lump it all next week um, as far as moving forward to how do we keep the Lord's Day? It's a larger discussion and I didn't want to chop it up in half. Um, but before we move on, is there any questions? Any questions? About any of it? The law of nature stuff? Any of it? You're all convinced? Great. I got the nod from Reuben. That means we're good. Okay. That, in a very brief nutshell, is the argumentation for why we keep a Christian Sabbath. And we could, I'm not even, we're not even going into church history. Um, I forget what it is. I think it's the Didache, which is one of the earliest um, Christian writings, very early after the time of the New Testament scriptures. It also refers to the Lord's Day as well. Um, and we see from very early on, Christians understand there is a day when, when God is to be worshipped, okay? Well, as I said, I, I decided to cut some stuff off here. We'll, we'll stop a little bit early. Um, we, have, we have quite a bit of time. Uh, we have about 25 minutes before church starts. Um, but if there's no questions, you guys are just...